Everyone knows a politician loves a hard hat photo and no more is pork barrelling and hard hat photos seen than in the world of transport projects. The winners are often concentrated in a single electorate whereas the losers are taxpayers dispersed across the state and country. It's something we should be especially wary of as the nation approaches a federal election. Thankfully, we have Marion Terrell, our Transport and Cities Program Director, on the case. I'm Kat Clay, and Marion and I will be discussing her latest report. Welcome, Marion. Ah, oh, thank you, Kat. So, Marion, pork barrelling is in the news. What are some examples of transport pork barrelling that have happened in recent times? Or should we say park barrelling here? Well, let me start off by saying what I think, what I mean by by the term pork barrelling. It's simple. It's the targeting of public funds to particular geographic areas for partisan political benefit. So we see it when politicians make commitments with public funding that when the, those decisions are not in the for the purposes of the public interest, but rather to win over voters in a particular area. So transport is not the only place we see it, but as you say. It's certainly a key area, and and what's important here is that the dollars involved are very large. So members of the public and people like me, we're not actually privy to discussions behind closed doors when governments make decisions or when oppositions make decisions about what they want to fund. So it's quite challenging to be very definitive. So the way that I've gone about answering this question is to look at two things. First of all, to think about aggregate spending and look at how it falls out from one state to another. And when you look at aggregate spending, what what we've found is that federal transport money goes mostly to the states with the most marginal seats. That is New South Wales and particularly Queensland. So, So we've had a look at all the ways that you might explain this, like the population, rate of population growth, how many kilometres of road network they've got, how much freight or passenger traffic they carry, and even how much um, the state government spends on running the transport system. And and so this is um, an overweighting of spending in Queensland and New South Wales and an underweighting in Victoria, more than can be explained by those types of factors. So that's one type of approach that you can use as a member of the public without access to special information. The other thing that we've done here is We've compared funding programs where there are objective criteria um, to those where there are not and seen what sort of um, how differently it plays out. And what we've found is that when there are objective transparent criteria with programs such as the Black Spot Program, which is a road safety funding program, and Roads to Recovery, which is about maintenance, the pattern of spending has been pretty much identical under Labor and the Coalition. Amounts are different, but the pattern of spending has been the same. However, where there are not objective transparent criteria, it's very different. And the Urban Congestion Fund, or a component of that, the commuter car parks component of that, um, which is quite a small component, we've seen with that with that uh, $4.9 billion program, very large program, at, that marginal seats got an average of $83 million. Safe coalition seats got an average of $64 million. Safe labour seats, an average of $34 million. It's very stark that that this is being sent, directed quite dominantly towards marginal seats and secondarily towards 
rewarding the base. Now, Marion, I mean, the other thing that comes out of the report as well is that a lot of these funds also go to states and electorates that are more marginal as well. Do these funding choices actually work to influence the election outcome? Can we draw any conclusions from that? <laughs> uh, it depends, really. Uh, so different, um, there's been quite a lot of academic study of this question. I, I think the short answer is it depends. Different studies find different results as to how much a bout of pork barrelling affects voting in the next election. I, th I think it is also worth noting that it can work in through different channels. Um, so clearly there's the direct wooing of voters for the upcoming election um, and you can see why that focuses on marginal seats and marginal and important electorally important states. But there is also the message that a politician or a, a political party is sending to voters that they're looking after their base, as in, you know, we keep faith with you. So, that, so that's how I make sense of the fact that um, there's money going to, in the case of the Urban Congestion Fund, much more to safe coalition seats than to safe Labor seats. It is difficult to give a definitive answer on how effective it is, but what is important is that politicians believe that it works. I mean, my follow-up to that has to be, isn't an MP doing their job if they go to Canberra and lobby for their constituents to get funds? So it is important for a local member to represent their community, but not like this. So this is, this is not really going and lobbying effectively. This is really parties, disciplined political parties, um, deciding where they're vulnerable and sending money that direction. The job of the federal government really is not to be funding car parks, roundabouts and overpasses. There is a, an agreed division um, between the Commonwealth and the state, and the local government also is an important funder of roads, and it's not anything goes. The federal government's role is nationally significant infrastructure. What this means is where there are national public benefits or where there are spillover benefits for a piece of infrastructure beyond the state where it actually lies. And, and the, the federal government has laid out what nationally significant looks like in the form of the National Land Transport Network, which is laid out um, as a determination under the Act. So we know what the federal government's job is, but in reality, it funds a whole lot of roads and rail and car parks and roundabouts and overpasses that are nothing to do with the national network. There are small local projects all over the nation. In fact, there's about 800 uh, roundabouts, overpasses and car parks that are nothing to do with the national network. And funding these types of projects um, in, often in a very politicised way. But even if it's not, it's simply not the federal government's job. I'd really like to see what a nationally significant car park looks like. So, Marion, an MP's been caught with their fingers in the proverbial pork barrel. What's the punishment here? The short answer is there's no effective sanction. The ministers do commit to uh, operating without bias and without irrelevant considerations of personal gain, which includes political gain. But only the Prime Minister has the authority to judge whether the ministerial standards have been breached. And um, the ministerial standards have been pretty much the same for a long time. It is in the interest of no Prime Minister to find such a thing. So that's a, a structural weakness in there being an effective sanction. There are other laws. The Commonwealth Electoral Act does forbid 
um, offering a benefit, but it, it carves out the situation where you're just making um, a promise of future action. So in other words, it's, that's not helpful at all. There is the Public Governance Performance and Accountability Act, which says that the minister can only approve expenditure if it's efficient, effective, economical and ethical but there aren't actually any penalties for ministers if they transgress. There are criminal prohibitions, but they're little used. So there is the criminal code if they, if a minister dishonestly gets a benefit for themselves or someone else. But in, in practice, the Director of Public Prosecutions very rarely pursues this. Um, there is also a common law offence of misconduct in public office, which could be pursued in New South Wales, Victoria or South Australia. But again, for whatever set of reasons, um, we it's extremely rare to see anyone sanctioned under these kinds of conditions. There appears to be no effective sanction, but there is quite a lot of upside and even upside to the media criticism and the criticism of people like me of Paul Farrelling. In, in some ways, it's just giving oxygen to the fact that this money went to this electorate and benefited this community. So it, it's kind of like um, <laughs> it's a two-edged sword. I think it, it has this character that um, it is a kind of a form of PR for the person doing the pork barrelling, um, provided they, they do get away with it. I think that's a very valid point because, you know, if you're reaping the benefits of your lovely new roundabout that's helping regulate the traffic outside your home and the car park that's right next to the train station and it's very convenient for you, it would be easy to potentially turn a blind eye to the potential misuse of government funds. Uh, in order to build these things. So I guess we have to be on the lookout as we're coming into election. So two of the issues you flag in this report, and you've just tapped into one of them, is that the federal government should stick to funding nationally significant projects, which are not local roundabouts and car parks, as we've established, and that many of the projects that politicians back come election times don't have business cases approved by Infrastructure Australia. So I'd like to know... In an ideal world, what would need to happen before a politician announced a new infrastructure project at a federal level? The problem we've got at the moment is that the, the law that governs this is very weak. It's weak both in terms of what type of thing gets funded and also the process by which it gets selected. So I'd like to see a tightening of the law. Whichever party uh, wins government at the forthcoming election I'd like them to bring forward amendments to the National Land Transport Act that do that do both of those things. So in terms of what gets funded, I'd like to see a restriction of the Commonwealth's role in funding transport infrastructure to those things that are on the National Land Transport Network and, and also that the minister can't sort of, can no longer just arbitrarily decide what is and isn't on the network because there's it's quite a strange network if you look at it, the kinds of things that are on it and the kinds of things that are not on it. But um, really, they, to determine whether something is nationally significant should have some expert input. And, and my proposal is that Infrastructure Australia would evaluate the national significance of pro proposed additions to the network. So that covers what type of thing would get funded. And I think then the process by which it gets funded 
um, it should not really be on the basis of a on the back of an envelope or a colour coded spreadsheet. What should happen is that there shouldn't be any funding approved for for projects, particularly the big ones, hundred million dollars plus, um, before the Minister for Infrastructure has considered Infrastructure of Australia's evaluation of the project. And by evaluation, I mean things like the business case, the cost benefit analysis and also a priority ranking of where this particular proposal sits relative to other eligible projects. And that's that should all be in the public domain. There's no reason that we shouldn't see that before the decision is made because it, it is, in the end, a decision with public money. I think with a tighter act, then we would just see a lot less of the wastage and a lot less of the Commonwealth encroaching on territory that is not its territory to encroach on. And just more discipline about the use of public money, more responsibility. But Marion, I feel like that's taking the fun out of making election promises. I mean, it's not as sexy to say, oh, we're announcing we're going to be investigating the business case for a particular infrastructure project before the election. I get what you're saying, though. I think it's actually transparency is a little bit more important than political announcements. But the opposition also need to make you know, pre-election policy commitments around infrastructure, how are they supposed to make responsible promises here without the access to the bureaucracy to actually assist here? I'm not entirely convinced that they do have to make such promises, actually. But um, what we've found is that both governments and oppositions in, in the 2016 and 2019 election, we've done an analysis of the promises of both the major parties, and we found that almost none of them had uh, a business case approved by Infrastructure Australia at the time they made the commitment. Now, business case is, is important because it helps you to be informed when you make a decision to invest. That there is a lot less, that like there's not a lot of point in doing a business case once you've decided that you are going to invest. So I think that uh, governments and oppositions simply shouldn't be doing this. One of the developments that has been interesting is that in New South Wales, um, that they have an approach where they recommend that uh, ministers and, and non-government politicians, when they're making transport announcements, that they, um, when it's a very preliminary estimate, they say it's preliminary and they give the range of possible cost estimates. And as it gets tightened up, the, the range narrows. But So I'd like to see that sort of practice. When uh, politicians do make these announcements, they say how developed their cost estimate is the range of possible cost outcomes that they envisage could occur on the project. And also, um, instead of making wild claims about the project's benefits, just say the basis for their views on the project's benefits. So, Marion, I'm really interested in what you found in previous elections because we have an election coming up in the coming months. Is there anything you've learned from these past elections that we should be looking out for here? Yeah, I, I have um, learned a few things from looking at these. So just focusing on the two federal elections, the two, um, 2016 and 2019, um, what we have seen is that um, the parties, uh, as one party promises more, it appears the other one ratchets up its own promises. And so the election promises themselves form a kind of arms race. So back in 2016, both parties, the amount, that they promised for transport spending was about one year's worth of, of um, federal funding. And by 2019, it was more like about seven years' worth. So the, the actual amount of spending you know, has gone up slightly, but 
the amount that is promised has gone up much, much more rapidly, orders of magnitude more. And the problem with this is that they're not well considered. A lot of them are very poorly thought through. They haven't been through the Infrastructure Australia process. What it means is a bigger fraction of what happened, of what actually goes on to be spent is promised in that in the heat of an election campaign. We don't have a process, a robust process for cancelling the dud projects when, you know, in the cold light of day, governments wake up and look at them. The great majority of projects that are promised, um, and we've looked at this back since 2001, they do go on to be built, 80% of them go on to be built. So once a promise is made, that's pretty much that. It is going to happen. So I think not promising, uh, it would be good to see less promising in the election context because they're such um, kind of poor quality commitments a lot of the time, or if not poor quality, uh, the, those making the promises don't know what quality they are, so whether they're good, bad or indifferent. So that's one thing that I've learned, but I, I think um, as as the projects, as the size of the promises have ratcheted up, we have not, we, we're still seeing this, this business that almost none of them have have been fully considered by Infrastructure Australia, and a lot of them have never been even near Infrastructure Australia in the first place. So, Marion, you've already outlined two main ways we can improve transparency for these projects. So, I mean, the first is obviously changing the law, and the second is um, the really rigorous evaluation of projects and kind of transparency around where these projects are at and what stage they're at when they're being discussed in the public forum. Is there anything else that you could see important to improve transparency around transport projects, especially at this national level? What I'm proposing goes a long way beyond transparency, actually. This is about putting in much stronger guardrails to how spending is done. Um, so transparency is important, but I, I think what's important is to, to put some restrictions on the reckless spending of public money in the first place as well as letting us know about what is happening and not veiling it in secrecy. So I think the two things, the two components of this are, are both important, but transparency alone will only get you one step along the path. I like that differentiation because, um, you know, transparency feels sometimes like a personal responsibility of individuals, but actually putting the guardrails in place will prevent these things from happening rather than kind of relying on individual responsibility. I mean, if the federal government reforms these processes to stop pork barrelling, implements these changes. The question is, won't the state step in and do this instead? Or would it just shift to other portfolios? Will, will the barrel move? Transport spending is by no means the only sphere for this, but different spheres call for different types of controls. It's difficult to make a blanket rule because they are different and the incentives and the appeal is different. Um, I focused on transport because the dollars involved are very large, such as the $4.9 billion urban congestion fund. And in a typical year, the federal government is spending around $7 billion, $6, 7000000000 billion on transport infrastructure. So, it's, so these, these are, it's large amounts of money. Grants are a perennial favourite, not only of the current government, but they've um, historically, we've seen Labor did this when it was in office too, um, for example, with the strategic projects component of the Regional and Local Community Infrastructure Fund. The Howard government had its regional partnerships program. The Keating government had its community 
cultural, recreational and sporting facilities program. It's true that this happens in a range of spheres and it's happened for a long time. You know, historically, there's been a lot of patronage in politics. I think what I'm proposing would um, would be very beneficial from the perspective of transport projects at the federal level, but to, to get to uh, other levels of government and to other portfolios, um, I, I don't think this is going to solve it all. So I, I think there's a lot of work to be done and, and I'd like to see um, a more responsible approach taken by the, the incoming government of whatever stripe um, to all of this type of pork barrelling. Thanks, Marion. It's always an absolute pleasure talking infrastructure with you. If you'd like to read her new report, it's online for free at grattan.edu.au. Grattan is a not-for-profit organisation and one of our great strengths is that we're independent. We don't take donations from political parties. If you enjoy our podcast and our research throughout the year, please consider becoming a regular donor at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. We rely on donations from kind people like yourself to keep our research going. If you want to join the conversation about infrastructure and spending on Twitter at Grattan Inst and all other social media at Grattan Institute. And as always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.